Good morning. Welcome to this time of worship for Old Oak Bible Church. We are settling into new routines, getting used to what life apart looks like during this COVID-19 epidemic, uh, our pandemic, really. My name's Steve Barbie. I'm one of the pastors here at Old Oak, and we long to be back together. If you're with us for the first time, if this is your introduction to Old Oak, we, we would love to meet you, so please feel free to introduce yourself to us. You could reach out to me. You can reach out on our Facebook page. My email is pastorsteve at oldoak.org. When all this is said and done, we would love to meet you in person. We're at, in Middleburg Heights, Ohio, right by Southwest General Hospital. And if you'd like to know more about Old Oak Bible Church, you can visit our website, oldoakbiblechurch.org. There you can listen to past sermons. Even if you're on the YouTube page, page, we have the sermons when we've been apart recorded via video there. And on our website also, if the Lord would put it on your heart, we also have an option for giving online. You just click the little button that says give at the top of the page. And it should be pretty easy there. If you have questions about that, you can reach out to me as well. And normal ways of giving are also available. We know this is a time of really financial difficulty for a lot of people, an unprecedented amount of unemployed Americans during this time. So absolutely we understand, but the Lord still has given us um, uh, responsibilities and opportunities to steward what he has given us as a church. So we want to be faithful to those ends. What we're going to do today is not a replacement for what we would do when we gather together. We just, I want to make that clear right at the outset of our time. We can't simulate what it means to pray and sing and take the Lord's Supper uh, and preach and hear God's words together in the same place. We really long to have that again, but we want to use the technology that God and his common grace has given to us. So... We're going to make the most of it, and we're continuing in our series in the Psalms this morning, and we're going to be in Psalm 16 in just a moment. Uh, if you are looking online and have looked at our Facebook page or received an email, you'll receive what's an online bulletin that will guide you through worship this morning as we're apart. It'll include some songs, some scripture readings, even a short guide of praying uh, on your own with your family this morning. So please take a look at that even before you watch the sermon. You could press pause and come back to it later. Uh, but what we want to do now is ask for the Lord's help before we dive into his word together. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for another day this morning. Uh, and on, on this day, God, we say you are still true, you are still beautiful and altogether lovely, almighty and powerful, and you reign over all that you've made. We say today that Jesus is still uh, crucified, dead and buried and risen again and lives evermore to intercede for us and that the spirit is still active in the world and God, that you are still good. So Lord, give us faith this morning in you make us aware of all the ways we have strayed from you this week, uh, straying away in our sin, God, that still tugs away at us. We want to draw near to you this morning through your word, so please be active. And we ask, God, that uh, in your mercy, as we are mindful of our situation around us, that in your mercy you would restrain and end this virus very soon. Uh, you can do this, God. And we ask, Lord, that you are at work for good to sustain those who uh, have this virus, to sustain families who've lost loved ones to this virus, and to be near them in grace and mercy, to give energy and wisdom to our, our leaders, to uh, healthcare workers. We're thankful for them. Uh, God, 
We ask that you would make us salt and light in our communities and show us opportunities to serve and help us to rest in you in peace. Lord, we ask that you do this even among other churches that gather this morning even or that, and that are apart today. Other local churches such as Abram Creek Baptist over in Brook Park. Be with Pastor Jamie and the, and the saints that gather and that are there at, at Abram Creek. Uh, that you would fill them with your spirit and fuel them by your word so that they would look like Jesus. We ask that you do the same around the world for the many Christians who are in India, many who suffer persecution there, many who are even just in areas where they are the only Christians. Please give them joyful perseverance in you and please keep them safe. So God, as we head into your word, give us focus. Give us eyes to see what's here. Give us passion for you and, and help us to see you for who you are. And we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, the wife of a well-known TV preacher uh, got some attention for a controversial statement she said during one of her messages. She said, when you pray to God, you're not doing it for God, you're doing it for yourself, really. And that statement, it gets after the tricky web of motivations that we have when we worship God. You know, the reason why she and most other TV preachers get derailed and, and get in hot water is because the happiness that they pursue from God is not really from God. It's not defined by God. The happiness they pursue is from the world. It's defined by worldly, materialistic, even American standards. But her statement touches a nerve. And we pray to God, we worship God, we live for God because he is glorious. He's worthy of everything we have. But serving and worshiping God for his glory and serving and worshiping God for our happiness, those are not mutually exclusive. We walk with God, worship God because he is glorious, and we say that walking with God and serving God is a happy and delightful way to live. And when we worship God, truly, we enjoy him. The Westminster Catechism famously says it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You might know Eric Liddell, who is the Scottish runner who ran in the Olympics. He's the subject of the film Chariots of Fire. He later went to be a missionary in China where he was murdered there. And Eric Liddell's most famous line, um, I'll do my best at a Scottish accent, is, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. When we do what God made us to do, live how God made us to live, glorifying and worshiping him, that is the fullest and happiest and most delightful way to live. Not free from trouble but full of goodness. I think we read the same thing in Psalm 16. Uh, when we read of David's prayer and drawing near to God, I think the main takeaway from David's experience in Psalm 16 is that we draw near to God by finding our all in God. And when we do that, we discover that this is the fullest way to live, both now and forever. Defining our all in God is the fullest way to live, both now and forever. So if you have a Bible, or if you're looking online, uh, find Psalm 16 
And follow along as I read Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Why does David pray to God in the first place? Well, I think the answer that the whole psalm gives us is that David prays to God because he finds his all in God. In a situation where he asks God to preserve him, he finds his all in God, and that's what settles him, and that's what fills him, no matter the outcome. But what does it look like to find our all in God? That's the main question I think this psalm answers. There are plenty of ways we might organize and, and chunk Psalm 16, but we're going to chunk it just by answering that main question. What does it look like to find our all in God? And today we're just going to give four answers to that question. We're not even going to make it through the entire psalm as I was Going uh, through this psalm this week, just found how rich it was, and I thought, man, I have to split this up. So today we're just going to get through the first four verses, and we're going to give four answers to what it means to find our all in God. Whether or not we'll get the rest of the answers next week and finish the psalm, I don't know. That's to be determined. But for now, four answers to what it means to find our all in God. Now, before we answer that, before we give any answer, we need to notice how David begins this psalm and sets up this question. You see that he begins it with a request. He says, preserve me, O God. Other translations you might be using will say, keep me safe. And when we think of preserve, we likely think of preserving something like food or artifacts. You know, preserving has the idea of extending the life and usefulness of something, sealing it off, from what threatens to deteriorate it, from what threatens to destroy it. You know, we're thankful to somebody like Nicolas Cage and the movie National Treasure for demonstrating the necessary, necessary lengths it takes to preserve historical documents. That it's got to be under the right light, it's got to be in the right casing, it's got to be in the right conditions and temperature so that it can be preserved and kept. But unlike Psalm 3 that we looked at last week, there's not an occasion in the title of this psalm. We can't say for certain when David's writing this. And given all that David endured in his life, there are a number of times, any number of possibilities, when David could have pr prayed, preserve me. 
But whatever his situation was, it led him to pray what he prayed in the rest of this psalm. And my goodness, what a prayer it is. All right, it helps us make sense, I think, of what James says in his book in the opening chapter, to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Because here's a moment in Psalm 16, here's a moment in David's life when he had a unique and undivided, undistracted focus and nearness and devotion to God. And that unique time in his life all was prompted by whatever difficulty David was going through. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. It presses us closer in to God, just like it did for David. So David opens with a very short prayer, preserve me. And then he takes a really long time and goes into why he prays to God in the first place. Boy, that's a question I think we take for granted all the time, isn't it? Why do we pray at all? Why do we even pray to God in the first place? And after David makes this request, he pauses and he gives reasons for why he prays. I wonder, do we just sort of mindlessly and vaguely pray without ever considering or pondering who God is and what God means to us and to our lives? I think we examine most of our prayer lives and we would conclude, yes, we do that. We fall into the religion of uh, those around us. Many have described the religion of America as moral therapeutic deism. Big fancy words. It's a fancy way to say that Most of us will acknowledge God, have some vague idea that God watches over us and everything, and he wants us to have some kind of morality, live in a good way, but we have no real communion and relationship with God, and we pray or seek him mainly when we need God to help us be happy. Moral therapeutic deism. Boy, that is a far cry from Psalm 16, isn't it? That is a far cry from finding your all in God. And what does it mean to find your all in God? That's why we pray we find our all in God. Well, first answer, to find our all in God means that first, God is our refuge. God is our refuge. You see that right there in verse 1. And just to clarify what that doesn't mean, what God being our refuge does not mean, God being David's refuge does not mean that God would keep David from suffering. That's part of the lie that Satan tried to get Jesus to believe when he tempted him. He misquoted Psalm 91 to try to get Jesus to believe that if God is good, he will keep him from suffering. No, that is a lie. Even here in Psalm 16, David was in the middle of some kind of suffering. That's why he prayed, preserve me. And still, even though he was in the middle of some kind of suffering, he still said God was his refuge. That must mean that David understood that at times, God kept him safe and brought about his good during suffering. David understood that at times God kept him safe and brought about his good even through suffering. Like Joseph in the book of Genesis. Even through the evil of being sold into slavery, God was Joseph's refuge. And God acted for Joseph's and his family's good. 
Like Romans 8.28, a verse well familiar to many of us. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, even suffering. God is our refuge. What does that mean? Notice here that David says that he takes refuge in God. And I think one instance in David's life might help us understand this. You know, toward the end of David's reign as king of Israel, he took a census. Census of the population, of particularly the men who could fight in the military. And this is a seemingly innocent act, but all, that, all the reasons why David did that is a little bit complicated. Don't have time to go into it entirely right now. But even under a seemingly innocent act, like we say the 2020 census, you know, we need to do it. We need to know how many people live in the United States so that we can know what resources we need, what representatives we need. So a census seems like a reasonable thing. But for David, underneath his heart in taking the census was pride, was trusting in military strength and numbers rather than trusting in the Lord and the Lord's provision. And David himself, after he took the census, knew that. He was convicted. He knew that his heart was in the wrong place. And so God confronts David and God tells David, David, this is a sin and you're going to, and there will be consequences and effects for this sin. And in what was a really unique situation, God gives David really three options for what can happen, just like a father would with a son. He says there can be famine, there can be pestilence, or there can be sword. The first two really would be up to God for the extent of what they would happen. But the last one, sword, would really fall into the hands of man. So here, even in David experiencing the just punishment for his sin, he takes refuge in God. Listen to what he says. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but let me, fall, let me not fall into the hand of man. David took refuge in the mercy of God. To take refuge in God is to cast ourselves entirely on him, entirely on his grace and mercy to forgive and pay what we owe, entirely on his righteousness and holiness and wisdom and truth, trusting that God will do what is good, wise, and right. And when we read this in light of all the scriptures, to take refuge in God is to take refuge in the full and final refuge that God has provided through Jesus Christ, his son. Christians are now said to be hidden in Christ, standing safely underneath Jesus' perfect life credited to our account, standing safely underneath Jesus' cross, his death in our place, taking what we deserve. We pray to God because we find our all in God. To find our all in God means first that we take refuge in God. Secondly, it means that God is our Lord. To find our all in God means that God is our Lord. Look at verse 2. David writes, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, most English translations of the Bible, the first Lord in verse 2 looks different than the second Lord in verse 2. The first Lord, all caps, is God's covenant name. He, the covenant name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. So that name behind the all caps Lord is Yahweh. 
I am who I am. And just a little bit housekeeping background note. It's Lord instead of Yahweh because the Jewish people came to refuse to speak this personal name of God for fear that they might take that name in vain. And friends, that's not a bad instinct. I think we treat the name of God far too casually. So people started using the word Lord, Master, or Adonai instead of Yahweh here. That's just a little bit of the background. Hopefully that's helpful for the time being. So the Lord, all caps, the great I am, the self-sufficient God who is the creator, dependent on nothing, lacking no good, lacking no resource, lacking no wisdom, and is perfect. That God is my Lord. He is in personal covenant relationship with me and his people. He is our master. We follow him. We listen to him. We submit to him. We obey him. We surrender to him. That's what David is saying here. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Friend, God cannot be your all if he is not your Lord. And as we said at the beginning, it's going to become clear as we continue in Psalm 16. Having God as our Lord doesn't keep us from good. It actually leads us into the most good. If you think about it, we've all experienced what bad authority can do. The destructive nature of that bad authority can lead us into. And David, David's experience was no different. David probably experienced it far more than any of us ever will. David had to live under the authority of the king that went before him, King Saul. And you remember King Saul, for a large part of David's life, pursued David, even though David was innocent. King Saul tried to kill David if David didn't do anything. So David knew very well the destructive nature of bad authority. And yet, he doesn't throw out authority altogether. And yet, even though David experienced what bad authority does, he knows what good authority can do. He still comes under and joyfully submits and follows God's authority. He says to the Lord, you are my Lord. He knows that God's authority is good and right and life-giving. And so we, like David, joyfully say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And those words that David utters, do you realize that we do not automatically say these words? It is not in our nature. By nature, we don't say to the Lord, you are my Lord. We say to ourselves, I am my Lord. We're going to see that in verse 4 of this psalm. Even in verse 4, the people who grew up with the best religious heritage there is didn't automatically trust and follow God as their Lord. The Bible echoes that over and over again throughout the whole scriptures. Like Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray to each to our own way. Romans 1, we worship the creature rather than the creator. This comes in many shapes, forms, and sizes. That we do not by nature say to God, you are my Lord. We do not by nature trust God as our Lord and follow him and listen to him. In our own culture, we see this displayed in the autonomous sovereign self. 
meaning that it's on us, the individual, to give ourselves meaning and truth and direction and purpose. So we hear expressions like, you know, just follow your heart. We hear expressions like, be true to yourself. We hear expressions like, you have to live out your own truth. By nature, we do not follow God as our Lord. By nature, we follow ourselves as our Lord. And you know, the deceptive part of this, and the kind of the really scary part of this, is that we can follow ourselves as our own lords and just cloak that with language that acknowledges God and is nice to God. That's the deceptive and scary part of this. We could try to convince ourselves and give the impression that God is our Lord, but at the end of the day, we still really do stuff that we want to do. Just because we acknowledge God with our lips does not mean that our hearts are near him. We can say a bunch of nice religious stuff and, and still be our own lords. Friends, hear, the, hear Jesus' warning. Jesus' famous warning when Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not automatic. and It can be very deceptive. And speaking of Jesus... We read of Jesus in Mark 12 just a few weeks ago, quoting another one of David's psalms, Psalm 110. And in that psalm, Psalm 110, David records an exchange. He says in that psalm, the Lord, all caps, said to my Lord, lowercase. Here's two different figures. The second, my Lord, being some sort of royal figure separate from God, but on the same plane as God, David calls him his Lord. This is the Messiah. This is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus. Time after time, Jesus claims this level of authority as being Lord. He says in John 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly identifying with the name of God. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preached a sermon, Acts chapter 2. He says that in the resurrection, God declared Jesus to be Lord and Messiah. Romans 10 verse 9. You probably know this. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Philippians 2 tells us that later on there is coming a day when all people will bow the knee to King Jesus and recognize him as Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So the message is, do this now. Bow your knee to the king now. Follow and trust him as Lord. The king who is good, the king who gave up his life and died for his people. Do this now before you are forced to bow your knee later when he returns to judge. This is, this, is not, this is not a small deal. This is not just a matter of preference. This is not, you know, maybe this is good for you, but you, you just do whatever you feel best. No, this is not. This is literally life or death. I think of Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there is, a, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. 
Do not follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Finding your all in God. What does that mean? We've given two answers so far. Interesting that the first two answers to this is that it's, it means having God as your refuge and having God as your Lord. Could we say it means having God as your Savior and your Lord? That these go together? That Jesus does not become your Savior at one point and your Lord at another point? That Jesus himself says that faith in him looks like following him. Jesus says that believing in him means listening to him. It means obeying him. That means if we do not follow Jesus as Lord, then we do not really believe that Jesus is Savior. What does it mean to find our all in God? To find our all in God means, number three, that God is our good. God is our good. He continues in verse 2. David says, I have no good apart from you. You see, this is a statement about David as much as it is a statement about God. All the good that David has didn't come from him. It came from God. The good that David has, David didn't earn. It was given to him. Like the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, he tells them, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not my accomplishments. I'm not the source of good. It's like, again, we quote the book of James. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father. Friends, we should look at all of our life, all of our salvation. We should look at that like we should look at a meal. Like we should look at a meal. God gets my attention about this from time to time. He got my attention about this this past week. Uh, one of my normal meal prep staples is just chicken breast. And I go out to Aldi each, uh, each week and, and get some chicken. And this week I was reminded of all of the ways, that, that all the things that go into my meal that don't come from me. So many different parts of it. You think of just the chicken itself. I did not raise this chicken. I did not kill this chicken. I did not slice up and process this chicken. I, did, I am not a part of the Food and Drug Administration that you know, clears that this chicken is safe. I am not the one who packaged this chicken. I'm not the one who delivered this chicken. I'm not the one who placed it in the store. Even in how I purchased this chicken, I'm not the one who gave myself the work to do it and gave myself the money to do it. God has given me the gifts and the opportunity to work. He's provided me what it takes to purchase this chicken. And then as I go to prepare it in the oven, I didn't make that oven. I did, I'm not a part of the gas company that fuels that oven. I'm not a part of the electric company that allows me to eat in a home with lights. I didn't make the table where I sit down to go eat this chicken. I didn't make the chair where I sit down to eat this chicken. I didn't make the plate that I put the chicken on. Layer after layer after layer, this meal did not come from me. All good I have comes from God. Then you wonder why Paul, when he goes to Lystra, speaking to people who don't know God, he says, God did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Our entire lives 
whether it's our salvation, our ministries, our churches, our food, are entirely a gift from God. From beginning to end, we'll ask the same question of Scripture. What do we have that we have not received? And when we really press into that and see all the layers to it, my goodness, are we amazed? Start seeing life from this lens. You will be amazed. You will be humbled. And you will be more grateful. We have no good apart from God. All our good comes from God, and God alone is our good. That's going to become clear later on in the psalm. So on the one hand, we say, if we have everything but don't have God, what do we have? Without God, no thing is a good thing. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? And on the other hand, we say, if we lose everything but still have God, it's not really loss. I know there's a lot that goes into that. But the principle is, once we know and have Jesus, we are never the same. Nothing and no one else means as much to us. We have that treasure in the field that Jesus describes in Matthew 13, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All of our good is in God. All of our good comes from God. We join with David and say, I have no good apart from God. Fourth answer, what does it mean to find our all in God? It means that God shapes our lives and affections. It means that God shapes our lives and affections. This comes out throughout the psalm, especially in verse 7, as we'll see. But in verses 3 and 4, right here, you look at these verses. God being David's refuge, God being David's Lord and good, that shows up and shapes the people David associates with. So this has a positive side and this has a negative side. So God shapes David's heart and David's life so that David loves what God loves and hates what God hates. David gets God's appetite. So the positive side is in verse 3. So look there. It says, As for the saints in the land... They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That word saint literally means holy one or set apart one. The New Testament calls all Christians, believe it or not, the New Testament calls all Christians saints. Paul writes to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And David says here, he, he's talking about the saints who are in the land meaning he's not talking about angels or heavenly beings. He's talking about people. He says the saints in the land are the excellent ones. They are the holy ones. They are the noble ones. So you put this all together. And David's heart for God, that God is his refuge, that God is his Lord, that God is his good, David's heart for God means that he also has a heart for those who love God. Here's a litmus test. Litmus tests for God being your all. What do you think of other Christians? What do you think of other Christians? 
we thank God for the culture that he's risen up at Old Oak, uh, that culture of love and affection between the members here. That is just a sweet gift from the Lord that we should not take for granted, uh, that we want to be, uh, that we want to attend to, even especially as we are apart. People talk to me about this all the time. But what do we think of other Christians? How do we feel about them? That question's still worth asking because if we're not careful, we can neglect this. If we're not careful, we can even fake this. What do you think of other Christians? Can you really say what David says in verse 3? That you delight in other people who love God. Can you really say that? If you haven't been around Old Oak, or you're, you're watching or listening to this, uh, we are so grateful that you're tuning in. Uh, but I just want to ask, are you a part of a church? Are you a part of a church? Especially if you identify as a Christian, if you would say that you love Jesus, do you love his people? Are you a part of a church? And I know there, there might be a lot of factors to that, but why not? If you aren't a part of a church, why not? Do you want to be? And why don't you want to be if, if you don't? More than that, we can ask, even if you do gather with a church, do you approach coming to church as a time when it's just to work on you and God, like it's just your time? Do you delight in other Christians, have a deep bond with them? Or is coming to church just sort of a sentimental hobby? It's something that you've always done and you just sort of, you come in, you feel good about yourself, and you leave. David's heart for others, he delights in others who love the Lord. You know, that's one reason why we emphasize meaningful church membership here at Old Oak as often as we do. The Bible calls us to love fellow Christians in a committed fashion as other Christians love us in a committed fashion. And that can only be done with Christians you're around on a regular basis. And we delight to do this. Because our Lord, we follow him and he calls us to do this. And our Lord has shaped our hearts and affections so that we love those who love him. We have a new family. Do we get annoyed with family? Uh, yeah, of course. But we love our new family. And that love is committed, deep love, so that we are attached and we persevere and we keep going. Do you have that? If you don't have that, what does that say of your love for the Lord in the first place? Finding is all in God. God shapes David's heart and life, which in turn affects who he associates with, the people he's around. There's a positive side to this in verse 3. The negative side is in verse 4. So let's read verse 4. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. There's a lot here. First we ask, what happens if you don't have God as your Lord? What happens? Remember we said that this wasn't automatic. 
And then we need the Holy Spirit to cause this to happen in our lives. So what happens if, if God is not our Lord? Well, what happens is something else will take his place. And that only brings sorrow. Maybe not right away, but eventually. And what is this sorrow exactly? David says in verse 4, notice here, I think this is telling. He says, there are those who run after other gods. So anything else that you put in the place of God in your heart and in your life, you will have to run after and chase down. And it will always elude you. It will always just escape your grip. You will never be fully able to catch it and squeeze it for all of the meaning and joy and purpose that you want it to give you. Sorrow comes when that happens. It's like a dog chasing after another truck, like a, chasing after a truck. Never going to reach it. Never going to catch it. It's like the gods in Isaiah that Isaiah warns about. The gods that these people had to carry. Isaiah's message to them is, how do you expect gods that you have to carry to be able to carry you? So when that person or that commodity or that career that you put in God's place proves that it's not God, and when you lose it and it escapes your grip, it will crush you and it will bring sorrow. We know this from everyday life, don't we? We just don't admit it. The reason why so many of us mistreat our, our spouses or our children is because we want them to be what they can't be for us. So we live vicariously through our kids, wanting them to make up for all of our faults, wanting us to see our own achievements in them and put an undue amount of pressure on them and find our all in them. And when they can't carry that pressure, it crushes us or we end up crushing them. We have this lofty and high view of a spouse and a high view of marriage that our spouse is going to somehow complete us and complete our souls and be this perfect person. And when they are not God, when we discover that, all of a sudden that's our spouse isn't the person who we married and all of a sudden we fall out of love and all of a sudden 50% of people get divorced. When we put anything in the place of God in our hearts and in our lives... Sorrow will come. Nothing was meant. Nothing is able to give us the meaning and purpose God is able to give us. Even the good gifts we have. Even good things that we place, that we put in the place of God, they will lead to sorrow because they're not meant to be what gives us meaning and purpose. They're meant to be gifts. Gifts that point us back to God. Gifts that we entrust to God. And so when we love even good things more than we love the Lord, we set ourselves up for disappointment and sorrow. Not just because nothing else will uphold us and give us meaning and purpose, but you know also because nothing else will save us. It'll vanish. Those who run after other gods, their sorrows will multiply. That's what David says here. But then in the next part of verse 4, he starts to talk about how he interacts with those who run after another God besides the Lord. Because David finds his all in God, he's not going to partake in the worship of anything besides God. 
because David finds his all in God. He's not even going to utter the names of other so-called gods. That's David's approach. And we might say of David, David, this is a little harsh, don't you think? I mean, Jesus ate with sinners after all. So David, what, what's your problem? Before we conclude that David is some kind of holier-than-thou snob, remember that even though Jesus ate with other sinners, guess what? Jesus didn't sin. Jesus didn't join along with their sin. Believe it or not, friends, you can love and care for people the way that Jesus did and not approve how people live and how people sin. In fact, that's often the best and truest way to love people. And just because David says what he says here does not mean he doesn't have a heart for sinners. We, we believe in the analogy of faith. We interpret scripture with scripture. We read Psalm 51. David knows he himself is a sinner. And as a sinner who's been restored to God, he prays to God, I want to help other sinners be restored to you as well. He has a heart for sinners. So what David is saying here is not that he doesn't have a heart for sinners. It's that he takes sin seriously. He knows something like Proverbs 6.27, which asks, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? David's approach is that he's not going to mess with stuff that threatens to take him away from his one true refuge and Lord. David's approach is that he doesn't want anything else to shape his heart and to shape his life. My goodness, is this a word for American Christians? My goodness. We do more than mess with stuff that threatens to distort our hearts for God. We like stuff that threatens to distort our hearts for God. That's what we run to. That's what we binge. And I would just ask, well, how, do our, how do our habits, how do our downtime, how does that square away with a verse like Ephesians 5, verse 2, which says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Could it be that you have a hard time praying? that you have a hard time really engaging with the word, that you have a hard time listening to sermons, could it be because your heart and life is more shaped by your television, by your internet, by your media consumption, your heart and life are more shaped by that than your heart and life are shaped by the Lord? Maybe that's why your affections for God are cool and often dry. That's a word to me as much as it is to anybody else. One commentator asks very pointed questions. He asks, do you find it comfortable to be with those who sin openly? Are you at ease among them? If, like Peter, you have no difficulty warming your hands at the fire of those who are hostile to your, masters, to your master, it is because, like Peter, you are far from your master. Run back before you deny him. Instead of running from what threatens to distort our heart for God, we often run toward it. Not like David. 
And I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth reflecting on David's approach here. Because we can, we can view David's approach as not one, is taking sin seriously as, you know, that's just not our approach in life. And I think a lot of Christians are confused. A lot of Christians have the impression that in order to win people in the world, we have to convince people in the world that we are just like the world. You use the right lingo, have the right interests, have the right relevance, use the right presentation. And I get it. We don't want to offend people unnecessarily. We don't want to offend people with anything besides the gospel. And we want to show people that we are real people. I get it. We don't want to put stumbling blocks in their path. We want to have points of contact, similar interests, bridges to the gospel. We want to speak in a way people, in a way people understand. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about being confused as to what actually makes Christians compelling or what's supposed to make us compelling. Over and over again in the Bible, the Bible tells us that what makes Christians compelling is how Christ has changed them. What makes Christians compelling is not how much they are like the world, is that Jesus has saved them from the world. And that they are now distinct and different from the world. Not in a snobby or condescending or joyless way, but in a beautiful, joyful way. They found something better. We have found the true life. As Peter says, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. What makes Christians compelling is the change Jesus has brought in them that makes them different from the world. Listen to Jesus' words himself. John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. He says, guys, this is what's going to make you compelling. He says, if you have love for one another. Does not say, oh, if you have all the same and similar interests as other people. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. What's the result? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Guys, do we really think that we have to dress up Jesus and make him beautiful and make him relevant and make him interesting? The most compelling witness for Christ is what Christ does through his people. That we find our all in Jesus is our best witness for Jesus. And think about this as we're reading Psalm 16. Brothers and sisters, all of us were the people of verse 4. All of us ran after other gods and our sorrows multiplied, but Jesus saved us. And we have him, the one who made us and loves us and died for us and rose again and forgave us and is with us and is bringing us home as we follow him. We have that treasure in the field and we're free. We who were restless and sorrowful have found rest and joy in Christ. And we're changed. And that change has always been what makes Christians compelling. That they are separate and distinct from the world. Listen to how Paul described the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians 1. 
He writes of their faith. He says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. It's famous. It's compelling so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What was compelling? What made the Thessalonian Christians' faith famous? It's that Jesus saved them and changed them and made them different from the world. Y'all, what if we flipped the narrative for what we found attractive about churches? What if we flipped that narrative? And we went from, you know, this church has all the lights and the staging and the relevance and the music and the building and the service opportunities and the branding and the people who are just like me, who I can relate to. We went from that to this church preaches the beauty and riches of Jesus and his gospel. This people here love each other so much to the point that it's almost weird. This people here are holy and pure. They are different. They're not satisfied with all the trappings of the world. But at the same time, they're not condescending. They're humble. They know they're saved by grace. They're not joyless. They're happy. They're joyful. They've just found something better, the true life. The people here believe the gospel, and it actually is the heartbeat of their lives. Jesus has actually changed this people That's compelling. Let's pray we're that kind of church, Old Oak. And listen, Old Oakers, we might not have all the bells and whistles, but you know who we do have? We have Jesus himself. We have the gospel. We have the word of God. We have the spirit indwelling in us. Oh, that's what's beautiful, isn't it? And all of that other stuff isn't necessarily bad. But do not get distracted from the main thing. That Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our refuge, our good, saved us from running after other gods that led to our death and led to our sorrow and has given us life. We find our all in him. So my friend today, God calls you to turn from whatever you're taking refuge in, from whatever whatever Lord you're listening to and following, from whatever whatever you find your good in to whatever shapes your heart and life, to turn from all of that and to turn to him. To turn from dead idols that lead only to sorrow and turn toward your creator, the God of life, who's made himself known and rescued his people from their sin by crucifying and rising from the dead his son. Find your all in Christ today. Pray to Jesus just along with this psalm. Jesus, in you I take refuge. I cannot save myself, and I'm guilty. You are my Lord. I do not follow myself. I want to follow you. And apart from you, I have no good. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And Christian, this message is still true for you. 
you have all in Christ. Suffering will come. We're going to have those moments like we cry out alongside David just at the beginning of this psalm, preserve me. And it's in those moments our Father is still kind. And our Father shows us where we've sought refuge besides him, what we've desired more than him, what we have followed instead of him. It's like the last stanza of a song we often sing. It says, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Turn again and find your all in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make it so in our hearts. We do not have refuge in ourselves. We do not follow ourselves as our Lord. We have no good apart from you. And we have you. No longer running, but resting in you. So God, we want to find our all in you today. And fill us with your word. Give us the power of the Holy Spirit to follow and rest in you still. Please do this for your people. Please draw people, more people to yourself for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.